Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, something a little different. My guest isn't a curator or an artist. He's a journalist and an historian. With One-Way Ticket, Jacob Lawrence's migration series and other works on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York through September 7th, I thought it would be a good time to talk with Nicholas Lemon. He's a Columbia University journalism professor and the former dean of the Columbia J School. He's also a staff writer at The New Yorker. In 1991, he wrote the first major examination of the subject Jacob Lawrence examined in his famed 1941 series of 60 paintings. That book, titled The Promised Land, The Great Black Migration and How It Changed America, was a bestseller and won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for History and the Sidney Hillman Prize. He and I will talk about Lawrence's paintings in the context of the history that they portray. Before you listen to our conversation, it might be helpful to have a look at manpodcast.com where you can find images of the works we discuss. On the second segment, I'll check back in with Pulitzer Arts Foundation curator Tamara Schenkenberg. A few weeks ago, I talked with her about a Fred Sandbeck she was installing. That work, originally installed in Munich in 1975, is untitled, but is known as 64 Three-Part Pieces. It's a rather unusual piece. Sandbeck created it to have 64 possible permutations. The Pulitzer has been realizing a different permutation of the piece each week of the show. Schenkenberg will tell us about what that process has been like and about what she's learning from the work. But first, Nicholas Lemon, after the break. Having recently completed a major renovation of its Tato Ando design building, the Pulitzer Arts Foundation is now open with three exhibitions, Calder Lightness, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces, and Fred Sandback 64 Three-Part Pieces. On view through September 12th, the exhibitions offer visitors unique opportunities to experience the artist's works. The Pulitzer's expansive, light-filled upper level provides an ambiance that animates Calder's hanging mobiles and offers multiple vantage points from which to view these iconic works. In its first exhibition since 1975, Sandback's 64 three-part pieces makes a U.S. debut in one of the Pulitzer's new galleries, with a different sculpture presented every week. Installed by the artist himself, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces provides a rare opportunity to see a large concentration of these works from 1972. For more details on the exhibitions, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Habsburg Splendor, Masterpieces from Vienna's Imperial Collections, showcasing masterworks assembled over five centuries of empire building by Europe's longest reigning dynasty. The exhibition of some 100 objects from Vienna's Kunsthistorisches Museum is on a national tour this year and opens June 14th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Habsburgs for more. And we're back. Nicholas Lemon, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. So since about the turn of the 18th century, really, America has been marked by a series of major migrations across the country, first away from the Atlantic coast, then across the Appalachians, then across the Mississippi, and eventually toward the Pacific. The one that's kind of least been written about by historians, and in fact, your 1991 book was, was really the first, is the Great Migration from South to North. What caused it and how substantial was it? This is one of the biggest internal within-country migrations in world history. It's African-Americans who were overwhelmingly concentrated in the rural South at the dawn of the 20th century, moving out of the South and, and moving you know, mainly to cities, mainly in the North, although also to the West. 
And the first big wave of the Great Migration was during the First World War. And uh, then it sort of died down during the Depression because there wasn't so much economic activity. And then the second big wave was during the Second World War and, and, and afterwards. So from, say, in the decades of the 1940s and 50s uh, were really the peak of the migration. And, and it ended sometime in, in aggregate terms. It ended sometime in the 60s. The numbers are roughly 5 million Black Americans moved from south to north, and another million and a half moved from south to the west coast. So it's a total of a six and a half million, which is a, a really big number and a significant percent of the African American population. Like if you turn on the radio or look up a guide to your local radio stations, uh, they'll say, the station plays urban music, and that's a kind of code word for African-American music. You know, if you'd said to people a hundred years ago, the word urban will be understood by everyone to mean you're talking about black people, they would have fallen out of their chair because because African-American culture and civilization was was fundamentally and overwhelmingly rural, as well as being Southern, of course. So the reason there was an emigration out of the rural South and into the urban North was because the sharecropper system that had dominated black life in the South. Well, it's a combination, you know, in, in people who study migration use the terminology of push factors and pull factors. So the push factors are how bad things were in the South and the pull factors are how much better things were in the North. So it was both. It was one of the unusual cases where, you know, if you were living in the Mississippi Delta, 24 hours later, you could be in a place where you could instantly get a job at a multiple of what you were making back in Mississippi, and you would live in a nicer place, and you would have full citizenship rights, including the right to vote and the right to legal justice. You know, so it's not like... If you went through a very long, 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 ardu arduous journey and were willing to wait a generation, your kids might have that. You could have that literally overnight. So, so it was this very powerful pull. Before we get to the Jacob Lawrence panels, I think it would be fun and helpful to kind of set up your book and, 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 and to give a quick backgrounder on how you presented the story of the Great Migration. You focused on one particular place in the Mississippi Delta as, as a departure point, kind of around which you built the book. What was that place and why did you pick it? The place I picked was Clarksdale, Mississippi. And, you know, the way the book was constructed, I needed to pick a, a, a starting place and an ending place. And, you know, one could have picked a lot of different examples. I, I picked the Mississippi Delta and Chicago. I mean, the two places that I picked had to go together. I couldn't pick rural South Carolina and Chicago because that was a different migration route. But in a certain way, they're, they're the most sort of, you know, resonant two places in the whole Great Migration, Clarksdale, because it's in the heart of the Mississippi Delta, you know, one of the places in the United States with uh, the highest historic percentage of African Americans, home to an unusually oppressive form of white supremacy dating back to, you know, 
pre-Civil War days and, and ever after plantation, cotton plantation economy. And then a lot of elements of, of, of African-American culture, which the most famous is the blues, kind of kind of that's the home ground so so it, it i was looking at a bunch of places but it started to seem perverse not to pick the mississippi delta and and i just wound up in clarksdale of a number of towns in the delta one of one of the anecdotes that really gets across the volume of the migration is that one day in chicago you discovered a mississippi high school reunion in Right. And this was actually when I was working with an earlier town called Canton, which is outside of Jackson in the early phases of the book. But yeah, I was I was driving in a car from O'Hare Airport into town to do research in the early stages of the of of the project. And I was listening to a black radio station. They had a kind of announcement section. And there was an announcement for uh the the high school it was the twenty I guess it must have been the twenty thirtieth reunion of the Canton, Mississippi High School class of 1955, which was being held in Chicago rather than Canton. So I kind of pulled over to the side of the highway and jotted down the number to call and called the number and ended up meeting all these people from Canton in Chicago. Your book revolves around Ruby Lee Daniels Haynes, who moved from the Mississippi Delta to the north. I'm guessing that as you've looked through the Lawrence migration series, that sometimes you've had her in mind and looked to see if you see her in in any of them not not literally but but kind of metaphorically yeah definitely i mean J- jacob lawrence there's a number of characters in the book who are migrants but she's sort of the the most has the most memorable story and takes up the most space jacob lawrence was was doing his work actually at the before the peak years of the migration 1941. Yeah, and and it was just you know it, there had been a big phase in World War One, and it sort of died out as I said during the depression. It was just starting to pick up again, and he spotted that. But but Ruby moved uh, somewhat later in in more of the peak years. But definitely the the outlines of the story he tells are are very much the outlines of her story. Well, before we get to some individual panels you've you've picked out for us. I know Lawrence isn't mentioned in your book, but you did engage with the work after the book was published. How so? So what happened was I had the good fortune of having the book made into a very, very good documentary series on television with the two partner uh, producing institutions being the BBC and the Discovery Channel, which was then brand new. I can't remember what year this was, but it was sort of late 90s. But it was a really wonderful, big, expensive production uh, where they interviewed a lot of the people in the book and, and, and so on. Really, really well done. And the guy who did it, Anthony Geffen, got interested in all the things that we've been talking about. So first thing he did was he made a, 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 a CD of music to accompany the Great Migration, which I don't know if you can still buy it, but it was great. It was a two two disc set. And then he somehow tracked down Jacob Lawrence, who was then living in Seattle, and persuaded him to collaborate on a title sequence that was a sort of animation of elements from the series. And I think it's the first time and only time he since has passed away, but I did get to meet 
Lawrence when we were doing that. And he did, you know, the, the result of this was a little, you know, 15 second or 10 second snip that ran at the top of every episode. It was really nice to watch the images move. And he came to the premiere and all that stuff. So that was great to get to meet him. Well, so you picked out some panels for us to 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 chat about, and we'll have images of all of these, by the way, on manpodcast.com. We'll 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 have the panel number. Lawrence did two sets of captions for each panel: one in 1941 when the series debuted, and in 1993 when the Phillips Collection in Washington, which owns half of the work, was preparing a show. Lawrence took the opportunity to retitle them. We'll have we'll have both. The first panel you picked is panel seven. The 1941 caption is, the Negro who had been part of the soil for many years was now going into and living a new life in urban centers. It's the most abstract of the panels. And I, you know, it, it's it's kind of hard to tell if it shows fields or the land rushing by on the railroad or, or both. So why did you uh, choose this one to start with? Well, it, it's an arresting, although, as you say, somewhat abstract image, but it just, I, I want to underscore something I said a minute ago, which is to be a black American in the statistical sense before the migration was to be a rural American. And, you know, some people say uh, this is phenomenon that, that, you know, black, well, there's a, there's a, a professor at Harvard Law School named Lonnie Guineer who says, uh, you know, black people are the canary in the coal mine. So they they present an exaggerated version of whatever's going on in the country. So the whole country urbanized and black America urbanized on steroids. And I, it's important to remember how overwhelmingly rural black America was much more so than white America before the migration. And then by the end, overwhelmingly urban, much more so than white America. And, and just, just to sort of, that, that's an abstract image, but it just drives home that message, which I, at the time that, that Lawrence did the, the, the drawing, he couldn't have imagined how the, the, the word urban would be taken, you know, in not that long from then as meaning black. So, so this is, you know, at the beginning, a deep, deep rural agricultural culture where people you know, well into the 20th century, worked in fields, had very little formal education. What formal education they got, they got in these wooden one-room schoolhouses. Rhythm life were rural agricultural rhythms. You can really see kind of that speed suggested on the panel where you're in, in where, where he's moving the brush very quickly across the board. The next, the next one you picked is uh, panel 17. The migration was spurred on by the treatment of the tenant farmers by the planter, is that a 1941 caption. This is really one of the most confrontational panels in terms of having two humans, or really three humans, a, a white figure and, a, and one black figure we can see and one other that's suggested facing each other. Let me just say a few words about the sharecropper system. And, and just to be very broad, you know, if you saw the movie Lincoln, it chronicles the passage of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which, as the movie shows you, was a near thing, but that abolished slavery. It was followed by two other amendments in the late 1860s, the 13th, the 14th Amendment, civil rights, 15th Amendment, voting rights. 
And so what happened is the 13th Amendment stuck and the 14th and 15th did not stick. They were essentially nullified by the South. And I wrote a whole other book that explains the story of how that happened. Also, much of that book is set in the Mississippi Delta, by the way. But so the, the, for, from the white standpoint, the idea was how could you create a system that was as close as possible to chattel slavery without being chattel slavery? And the answer was the sharecropper system. And, you know, variants of this has, have existed all over the world. But it's a system where you you if you were black you lived on the land owned by a white plantation owner and every year you would tend and harvest a crop in the case of the Mississippi Delta a cotton crop and you'd be essentially fronted a very minor stipend as your living expenses until the harvest came in and then after the harvest came in you'd settle up with the plantation owner and and you know get whatever was the excess of the money your part of the crop had produced, your share of that, or you would be behind and you would get nothing. And, you know, the, added to this, because of the 14th and 15th Amendment being nullified, sharecroppers had no legal rights. So if the planter cheated you, which often happened, you had no recourse. You just had to accept it. So it was a... Um, very hard world to escape that, again, was very close to being slavery without being slavery. And this panel shows the sharecroppers arriving at a scale with their bags of cotton. The scale is painted in in solid black, as if there's actually no no numbers or figures there at all. Right. And that's, that's because, you know, this is an event that would happen every year when the crop came in called the settle. And, you know, at least talking to migrants, the idea was that the, you, you would always get robbed by the planter or the overseer who would misweigh you or add and say, well, your cotton was this much, but there's all these charges against the company store or whatever. And, and uh, as a result of that, you know, you wouldn't get any money. So it was a sort of fake sharecropper system in a sense. Panel 20 is one of the most dramatic perspectives acute compositions in the series. The, the title is, In many of the communities, the Negro press was read continually because of its attitude and its encouragement of, of the movement. And right there in the foreground of the panel, we have three people reading a newspaper. Why, why, why did you pick this one? Well, I picked this one. I mean, all, all of these, I should say, I picked for, you know, visual reasons, not for visual reasons, but for sort of uh, historical reasons. Because of a bunch of reasons, it has sort of died out. But the, the, the what was then called the Negro Press was a very vital institution and, and part of African-American life at the time. And, and, you know, one of the most important newspapers was the Chicago Defender which is still being published, but isn't nearly as important as it was back then. And the Chicago Defender was circulated widely in Mississippi and other southern states and, and was an assiduous promoter of the migration. So poor black sharecroppers in Mississippi would encounter the Chicago Defender and read it and get this wonderfully appealing picture of life in the North along with exhortations to move. And, you know, for the defender, this was 
sincere belief combined with business interest because the more black people there were in Chicago, the more money the Chicago Defender would make. So it was a, it was a, a mix of those two motives. I guess the other major driver of intrapersonal growth to the North was letter writing, which we see in panel 33. People who had not yet come North received letters from their relatives telling them of the better conditions that existed in the North. Right. So when I was working on the book, you know, I talked to a lot of migrants and including, you know, many, many people who don't appear in the book. And they spoke a lot about getting these letters, you know, from, from relatives who had moved north, often saying how, you know, wonderful life was there and how they should move. Their relatives who were still back home should move because it was, you know, as in the title of my book, The Promised Land. We've been talking about Chicago a lot. and Panel 36 shows Chicago stockyards, and then the caption is, they arrived in great numbers into Chicago, the gateway of the West. I guess it surprised me, having not seen the series in a few years, that the, the way Lawrence first represents Chicago is, is with stockyards. Why, why do you think stockyards? Well, because, you know, the stockyards are not there anymore, but, but they were you know, into the 60s or 70s, they were a very important part of Chicago economically. And they were an important part of the migration because they were, you know, and, and this was true for generations of, of uh, immigrants from other countries too. You know, if you wanted to get a relatively well-paying relative to sharecropping job that required no education or skills, you could work in the stockyards. And you know, it's obviously it's a bloody, messy, unsafe place to work. This is, you know, as in Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle. But you could find work there. So a lot of people, you know, came to Chicago. The stockyards were on the south side, which was the, the center of, of the, the biggest African-American area of Chicago. And men found jobs in the stockyards. So it was kind of the the paradigmatic employer for at least male migrants are one of them. There's a famous uh, Helen Wolf song about a uh, romance gone wrong called The Killing Floor. And, you know, so you sort of see the stockyard imagery creeping into descriptions of things that aren't the stockyards. So the stockyards were kind of a point of transition between rural agriculture and urban-made post-agricultural product. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess you could say the cattle in the stockyards were themselves migrants, from the rural area to the city, and now you would butcher them and kill them. So Lawrence's picture also kind of refers to a certain industrialization of agriculture as he has smoke coming out of the stacks of the stockyard buildings. It's, it's a really interesting transitional image. Yeah, and you know, this is a big part of the, the long-running story of the black migration is the number one, you know, category of jobs that drew people to the north were these, you know, unskilled industrial factory jobs, steel, and, and, and you know, in the in, elsewhere in the series, he mentions wartime production, which was a big uh, job magnet, especially since so many white working age people were away fighting. And that's all gone now, especially in Chicago. So, so you know, and it's had tremendous effect on American cities, especially in the so-called Rust Belt, and on the economics of African-American life, that, that the, um, the kinds of jobs that drew people to, to be participants in the migration 
a generation later went away. Panel 37, which you know, evokes a steel mill, which shows hot, hot molten metal pouring through the air, evokes that. And the next panel you chose, which is panel 51, so 14 panels later in the series, Lawrence kind of uses similar brush strokes, a similar kind of dynamism of, of color and energy to show us something very different. And, and the caption suggests that. It is in many cities in the north where the Negroes had been overcrowded in their own living quarters, they attempted to spread out. This resulted in many of the race riots and the bombings of Negro homes. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the most astonishing and, and really kind of unlikely images in the series. How quickly and abruptly did, did African-Americans move into the North and then face violence again? This is a kind of, very quickly, but, but this is a kind of oddly forgotten chapter in, in the history. You know, so we had been talking about uh, all the ways in which the North was better than the South, and it was better. But there were, it, it was not perfect in, in any way. And, you know, we're now in a moment in American life where people are talking about race riots again. And the, the term, at least to white people, connotes, a, a, you know, the kind of drama that's been going on for many years, especially in the late 60s, where there's a police brutality incident and then the black community sort of erupts. But there's a different kind of race riot that took place in Chicago and other cities constantly in the 40s and 50s during the peak years of the migration. So the dynamic was, you know, you'd have a traditional residential segregation was the rule in Chicago, very, very much so, very strongly so. And you had a defined black part of town. But you had a great migration going on. So the borders of the black part of town were by almost by definition unstable. You couldn't just squeeze more and more and more black migrants into the existing, you know, structure of the black neighborhoods. So there was pressure to expand the boundaries and those people who were making a little more money could afford to leave and seek better housing than this predominantly slum housing in much of the old black belt in Chicago. And so that led to just huge amounts of tension and violence. So what a race riot meant in that period in Chicago was whites rioting, not blacks rioting, to prevent black people from moving to their neighborhood. The, it would be a different drama where a black family would buy a house and the white population of the neighborhood would just explode. And this, these just happen over and over and over again. And finally, you know, it was never, it, it, it was a lot of instability around this all through the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and, and through the 70s. It's finally kind of settled down. But one result of this is that the Chicago Housing Authority decided to maintain segregation in Chicago public housing for decades because they they felt, you know, you just couldn't get people of different races to live together. So there was violence in Chicago between 1917 and 1920 of the sort you just mentioned. And you also noted how that violence is really the beginning of urban race riots, not, not the 1960s urban race riots we, we think about. And you noted that that this was violence instigated by by white people. So maybe these riots in the late teens and early twenties aren't just the forerunner of of black race riots in 
urban America in the 60s, but maybe also of white police bombings of urban neighborhoods that, that also happened in the 60s and 70s? Maybe. I, and I don't know if I'm willing to, to make all those connections. So let me try to, to restate it in another way. The encounter between the races in big cities was not a common Pacific one, to say the least. It was worse the lower you went on the economic scale generally, and it was worse the younger you got on the age scale. But there was just a lot of violence and bad feeling and unrest in the encounter between the races. And it had a number of dimensions. Uh, one dimension going back a long time was, you know, in the realm of what we call police community relations within the black community. In those days, the police force was entirely white, so that made it worse. And today, police forces are integrated, but you still have these tensions. Another big area was around real estate and, and people, uh, black people moving to formerly white, exclusively white neighborhoods. Another area was around schools and integrating schools. Any place where, you know, black people and white people came into contact with each other was usually a place where there was a, a great deal of tension and bad feeling and often violence. The the next panel you picked is number 53. It's It features one of the most extraordinary passages in any panel, the, the extremely painterly dress of uh, an upper middle class or wealthy African-American woman. Her, her dress looks like something that Jackson Pollock would, would paint two years later in Mural. The caption is, the Negroes who had been north for quite some time met their fellow men with disgust and aloofness. I think that's a, that's a part of the migration story that is almost never told today. Right. So there's, and by the way, this is a common narrative with immigrants in, in almost any ethnic group. So it, it, this is not unusual to African-Americans. But, you know, there were na names you hear like uh, the old settlers, the cliff dwellers, etc. Chicago had a long-established pre-migration uh, African-American community that, you know, some was poor, but but a lot was not poor. And in that community, there were people like the guy who owned the Chicago Defender who had a business interest in promoting migration. And then there were people who didn't have a business interest and they had were, you know, tended to be somewhat snobbish toward the migrants and to feel that the migrants were kind of ruining everything for them. They had built a nice life in the black belt of Chicago and suddenly all these poor folks from the farm were coming up and, 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 uh, you know, creating a tremendous amount of instability, changing the image of black people, et cetera. So the the, uh, the behavior generally of these folks is, doesn't stand up well over time. But it was, uh, you know, it, as I was doing that, if you were talking to a lot of migrants and getting their memories, uh, you often got this strain of resentment of, you know, well, well off and established black families in Chicago. And by the way, you know, when, when Dr. King came to Chicago, he was greeted with, uh, not with open arms, whatever is the opposite of open arms by the established black ministers of Chicago for sort of the same reasons. 
So the last panel in the series is is, is a, a, a reprise of a, a theme and a panel that runs through the series. It's called And the Migrants Kept Coming, and it shows a lot of people um, on a, I mean, scores of people on a uh, train platform. The next to last panel in the series was your final selection, and I think the caption, is, which is the simplest of any of Lawrence's um, captions really is, in the North, the Negro had freedom to vote. Again, I, I don't know if in this day and age people fully get this. Maybe it's stating the obvious. I don't think it is. In the South, because of the nullification of the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, you know, after about 1875, overwhelmingly black people in the South could not vote. You know, they had a federal right to vote that the states and, and counties figured out ways to take away through a bunch of means. So, so you know, black people couldn't vote in the South on the whole. And that was uh, and true until the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965. So for 90 years, you know, the vote was taken away. But, you know, whatever else was happening in the North, black people could always vote in the North. You know, yes, some issues of voter suppression, but overwhelmingly they could. And that was just a huge, huge difference Partly for obvious reasons and partly because when black people could vote, it meant that there would be black office holders, black members of Congress, which Chicago had for decades. And those people became influential and powerful spokesmen for the interests of the race. And they, too, were promoting migration because then there'd be more more black congressional districts in Chicago. So and and, and if you had representation, you could get things like better government services, better schools, better jobs, et cetera, because, you know, everything, especially in Chicago, then was political. So it was, it was just crucially important part of the migration that the typical migrant went from being a disenfranchised person to a voter. The one part of this panel that has always kind of, I don't know, surprised or maybe not quite puzzled me is, is the inclusion next to the voting booth of a figure in blue with a blue cap holding what appears to be a black stick, probably a nightstick, probably a policeman. Does Lawrence include him because he's protecting the right to vote? In in Chicago in those days, the police were everywhere. And politics was a bit of a blood sport. So, you know, I don't think if the image in your mind is he's there to prevent black people from voting, that's not generally true. But politics was so consequential. And so it's more fair to say protect the right to vote. I think probably the most fair thing to say would be to protect the some semblance of peace around the polling place, because the way politics was then, there was often, without police presence, physical conflict at a polling place in a way that's kind of unimaginable today because politics was so high stakes. This was the heyday of the machines and, and, and all that. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite an image. Well, Nicholas Lemon, thanks so much for talking with me and for taking us through the series. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And everybody should go see the show. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, 
shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn design galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Pulitzer Arts Foundation curator Tamara Schenkenberg. You may remember that a few weeks ago, I talked with Tamara about a Fred Sandbeck she was installing. That piece was originally installed in Munich in 1975 and has not been installed since. It's known as 64 three-part pieces because Sandbach created it to have 64 possible permutations. The Pulitzer has been realizing a different permutation of the piece each week. Tamara Schenkenberg, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be Catch us up on, on your Fred Sandback installation. Remind us what it is and why it's kind of an unusual special thing. So Sandback conceived of untitled 64 three-part pieces 40 years ago in 1975, and he described the work as a sculpture series. So there are 64 sculptures in the series, and only one sculpture can be presented at a time. So that's one interesting aspect of the work, that it's perceivable or, or perceptible or experiential parts. And each of the 64 sculptures is comprised of three lines of yarn that are stretched individually across three adjacent spaces. So the work is presented in a single gallery that has been subdivided into three parts. And the way you experience the sculpture is by walking along a corridor that runs the length of the room. What you can't do is pull away to observe the sculpture at a distance because it exists in multiple parts that you can't realize at once. So really intriguing about it is that it unfolds over time as you walk across the gallery. And how often have you been changing it up? So the exhibition run is 20 weeks, and we want to show one sculpture uh, for each week. And so far, we've presented five of them. So because this piece hadn't been shown since its debut in Munich, it is kind of that uh, really unusual artwork that a curator is installing without having seen the whole thing ever. (laughs) In fact, maybe no one's seen the whole thing ever. (laughs) How has... How have the progressions happened? What have you seen happening in or to the work as you've learned more about it each week? So, yes, I've not seen the work uh, until it was presented in the gallery, and it's been a wonderful process of discovery. And although for sculptures within the series, Impact doesn't really stipulate that they be presented in any particular way or, or that a certain number of them has to be executed during the length of its presentation. So the, the sculptures have been chosen by me not really randomly. First iterations or the first few permutations, I really wanted to vary 
the lines. So the important thing to know is that the sculpture can be presented at two heights. There stretch the yarn uh, directly on the floor, or it can be installed 150 centimeters up, which is about five feet up from the floor. And the discovery has been with how one experiences uplines downlines. So uplines, which are just shy of five feet, are certainly the most important for our visitors. And what they do is they cut across your field of vision, which triggers really complex perceptual shifts. So if you approach the upline, what happens is that on the one hand, the work appears not to cut across space, but instead it looks like the sculpture is a line that's being drawn on the wall. And it makes it really difficult for people to understand and make sense of the space, if that makes sense, because it really complicates your perception of depth and your ability to judge a distance between yourself and your work. So it's led to these really interesting experiences where visitors have run into the work or have been very close in running into the work because the line appears to sit farther in a space than you can imagine. Has your understanding of Sandbach's playing with that idea changed through different iterations of the piece? Yes, absolutely. And it all underscores one of the concepts that were that was very important to Sandbach, which he called pedestrian space, which was this ardent belief that art should be rooted in the space of everyday life and that his sculpture belongs to the space that we live and walk in. So it, it sort of invites you into it to experience it in a very visceral way by making you, you know, almost run into it in a way that's a collision between art and life. I think that sort of honors this concept that he was really after, meaning that there's really no difference between the world of art and the world of daily life. And then on the other hand, you know, there's these uplines. Like I said, they really captivate visitors' attention. And the terms that I've heard people describe them are dizzying, orienting. And I think they definitely make you think of space in a new way and make you think of your role as a viewer in a very dynamic way. But then there's these downlines, and they're, they're lines of yarn that are just directly on the floor. And they're definitely more complicated to cover and interact with because they sit directly in the floor. So on the one hand, they're difficult for people to see. When you walk into the gallery, just like an empty space. And then when you do see them, it's not quite clear what you're meant to do. And I think what I've seen is that visitors seem to be profoundly uneasy about empty space, you know. And it's not unusual to see sculpture directly on the floor, but what's unusual is to see a sculpture directly on the floor that lacks any interior mass or solidity. And so it's a, it's a very unexpected situation for art and sculpture. And it's also very unusual for Sandback. Right when he started working, he created a piece that's considered one of his important early pieces called Untitled Red Floor Piece from seven where the sculpture sits in the middle of the space. But he didn't really repeat this position for sculpture. Instead, most of his work is stretching you know, um, lines between wall and floor, or wall to wall, or floor to ceiling. But having something directly on the floor has been uh, different. 
Now that you've installed a number of different iterations, do you find that you can read the drawings of the piece differently, that you can kind of read what they might be like physically installed as you, as you look at the drawing on the piece of paper? Yeah, so the, there's 64 drawings in the space represent the 64 sculptures. And they don't have the architectural grid, so really it's lines floating in space. And what we've done that I've that I've seen uh, visitors being grateful for is to pull out from the grid of 64 drawings the permutation that is directly presented in the space, that you can have this correspondence between sculpture and the drawing that depicts. And I yes, I think the answer is you can see um, the the correspondence, but it's still the direction drawing that doesn't really make the the people It still still reads in a very dynamic way. Well, Tamara Schenkenberg, thanks so much, and we'll have you back in a couple of weeks and find out more about how it keeps changing. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Thanks, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.